0: Hello and welcome to the latest podcast, exploring material texts, book history, interesting research in material text that's going on in Oxford, around Oxford University. My name is Adam Smythe, and I'm a university lecturer in the history of the book and I'm delighted to be sitting at a table here with Professor Tiffany Stern, Professor of Early Modern Drama here at Oxford, and we're shortly going to go and have dinner together, aren't we?
1: We are indeed, yes. Which I'm very excited. Chinese food.
0: Chinese food, and I'm very excited about it. But as a sort of prelude to that, we're going to talk a little bit about early modern playtext and drama and and Tiffany you're interested I think in what we can learn about material text as as clues as insights into performance and performance conditions is that right is that what you're interested in I hope it is
1: yes it is (laughs) yeah I'm intrigued by the way you can tell things about the manuscript text that must have preceded a printed text Mm -hmm. and how you can therefore tell things about performance Mm -hmm. and I've got a few examples here that I'd just like to share with you fantastic (laughs) yes we're
0: looking at some lovely examples okay
1: Yes. So we are looking at a bit of Richard Broom's play, Asparagus Garden. And the reason I'm showing this to you is that there's a page on it, which has both the prologue to the play and immediately under that, the epilogue to the play. And that's quite weird, because obviously in performance, you'd have the the prologue at the Mm. uh, beginning, the epilogue at the end. And here, they're stuffed together on one page. And I'm partly showing you that because these bits of... It's a kind of thing that may or may not be called paratext, Mm. because... It's kind of additional to a play, but it is part of a performance. So here it is in the paratextual bit of the book, the bit of the book which also has commendatory poems Mm -hmm. and various other things. So it's slightly aside from the play. And also these two bits of text have got stuffed together. And I got very interested by the number of times I found books with prologue immediately followed by the epilogue. Mm. Because I thought, well, then they must be circulating in a slightly different way from the dialogue Mm -hmm. of the text. And the more I looked, the more I found interesting examples of of this kind. And the reason I'm showing you this one is that the epilogue here, as I say, it's directly under the prologue in this particular version of Sparagus Garden, 1640. But in other versions, that bit of type has been picked up and put at the back at the Mm -hmm. right place. Mm So you can see that the printers have a sense of where these things ought to go. But the other thing we can sort of tell is they're probably printing this paratext after they've printed the body of
0: the play. Yeah.
1: And they're seeing prologue and epilogue as additional things rather than as quintessential bits of the play. Right, right. And can I show you a really funny one? I'd
0: love to see a funny one.
1: So here's a really funny one. This is uh, the epilogue yeah. to Muliasus the Turk, 1632. The epilogue precedes the start of the play. So... The player actually begins epilogus, the epilogue then goes finis, so you get the entire end of the play, followed by the start of the actual play. But what I really love is that the printer has put a little note under the epilogue, and it says, this epilogue should have been printed at the end of the book, but there was no spare place for it.
0: Fantastic. A little (laughs) confessional note that things went awry.
1: (laughs) Yes, so I think that's really, really fascinating, and it gives you a moment suddenly in the printing house with, with with this disaster, because presumably they've counted out their page numbers, but now they seem to be getting their prologues and epilogues later than mm-hmm. they got the body of the play, and they can't always therefore situate them in the right place.
0: It's a good example also, isn't it, of the way in which um, errors or, or, or moments where things go awry being useful... Ways into thinking about the kind of the method of the composition of the book the way the book was put together.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. and that sort of um, made me realize that prologues and epilogues are kind of slightly separate works from the plays they flank. And when you start realizing that, you also find that there are texts that are publications only of prologues and epilogues and not of plays mm. at all. I'm showing you here one which has a lovely picture of a prologue speaker, and it even shows the prologue speaker holding, as it were, the prologue, the script of the prologue in his hand. Mm. And this, I mean, to, to, to go into performance for a second, I think the reason for the fluidity of those prologues and epilogues and the reason as well um, for our having a picture of a prologue speaker holding the prologue physically is that you only spoke prologues generally on the first night, same Mm. with epilogues, Mm. in order to beg people to like your play and not condemn it and come back and give it more money. And so for this reason, for one thing, actors often read it on stage from a separate piece of paper, Mm. which meant it didn't need to be prompted, which meant it often didn't actually travel in the book of dialogue. Mm. And that also meant it really, really easily got lost. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting to me, very famous plays um, that haven't got prologues and epilogues Mm -hmm. and you're sure they must have Mm -hmm. had them originally. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of sort of Hamlet and Othello and Macbeth all have bits within the play which talk about how all plays start with prologues Mm -hmm. and none of those plays in fact Mm -hmm. do.
0: And is this this an aspect of your research more broadly in in taking the play text Mm -hmm. which We often or once thought of this coherent and stable thing, which had a beginning and a middle and an end, and it's it's gradually crumbling in your hands, isn't it? You're you're pulling the thing apart. (laughs)
1: I can't stop finding fragments. Right.
0: (laughs) And so are moments like songs and title pages, are these also instances of of mobile bits of text? Yes, yes. In fact,
1: I'm going to turn to songs in a second, if you don't mind, just just for for this very reason, that they float around in in that same way. Mm -hmm. And once again, you've got something like a printed text and you can feel as though that's quite fixed. Mm -hmm. But actually, the more you look at the placement of it and the Mm organisation of it, the more you get back to the scramble of the playhouse mm-hmm. and, and the way different bits of text get produced for different occasions and the way the play is a kind of itself a palimpsest of all sorts mm-hmm. of different occasions. And mm-hmm. when it's published, if it has the prologue or epilogue, then those are first performance or court performance moments. Mm-hmm. But the dialogue might be from a different moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you might have anyway is an accumulation even in a single play text.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So w- w- what are we going to look at next?
1: Okay, I can go on a bit more about prologues, but are you bored?
0: No, I'm, I'm not <laughs> bored. I'm, I, I'm, I'm hungry and we've got Chinese food, but yes. I'm not bored, so let's hear a little bit more.
1: Okay, so this is Troilus and Cressida in Shakespeare's first folio. Uh-huh. Now, Troilus and Cressida, there's also a quarto of it that does not have a prologue. And Troilus and Cressida in the first folio originally didn't have a prologue because we've got original printings for it which survive in some bits of the folio and this has on one sheet of paper the end of Romeo and Juliet and then the start of Troilus and Cressida. and what happened was that these pages were being printed up when it became clear that, that the Jaggards didn't have rights to the play of Troilus and Cressida. So they stopped printing it, but they kept these pages because paper's expensive. And later on, when they printed the entire rest of the first folio and had added a different play after Romeo and Juliet, *Timon of Athens. So much, much, much later, um, they finally got the rights for Troilus and Cressida. So they, st- they set up print for it again. They wanted to use these old sheets. The old sheets had the redundant back of Romeo and Juliet mm. on them. So the new sheets, they acquired possibly even they wrote, who knows, a prologue for Troilus and Cressida and made it massive so it could fill that otherwise redundant page. Wow. And it's another story of the randomness of the survival of a prologue, which when you read it, you might think is quite important to the play.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's also <laughs> a nice example of, of the actual material page preceding and conditioning the words that I poured out onto it i was looking recently at this fabulous edition of emily dickinson envelope poems that have just come out which are all these poems she wrote on envelopes recycled secondhand envelopes and there's a wonderful facsimile edition that's just appeared called gorgeous nothings and um clearly you can see the shape of her stanzas and her verse and her thinking being shaped by the fact she's only got a little bit of a of a folded down envelope to go And, and this is in a way an example of a similar kind of thing i guess isn't it
1: yes yes it is i mean Certainly in that this prologue has to be in massive writing in order to fill that side, that, that, that page. So there are lots of plays that have a prologue and epilogue in one version yeah. and not in another version. That, yeah. This is going to be precisely because it is part of the play and it's often authorial, but it's not a permanent part of the play. Mm-hmm. And I think of things like Shakespeare's Henry V... Mm-hmm which doesn't have a prologue or choruses in quarto form and then does in the folio. Or conversely, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, which does have a prologue in both quarto forms and then doesn't in the folio. However, let us now turn to songs. Song, yes. Songs. So these are weirder. It's a similar story, but they're weirder. So (laughs) there are quite a lot of plays which lead up to a very important moment that's going to be expressed in music. And then these plays have the word song but they don't actually have the content of the song. I'm showing you one here from James Shirley's Bird in a Cage. Now would I give all my jewels for the sight of a, a pair of breeches. And so this is leading up to a song, like a sexy song, except we don't have it, it just says song. And then after that, that word, song, uh, the speaker goes on to say, this but feeds our dullness. Shall we dance, madam? And yet, And yet, that moment, that incredibly important performance moment has gone. And it seems very weird, that something right in the centre of a play can drop out. Yeah. And here's a famous Shakespeare one. And this is Brutus, plagued with his conscience, hoping to be able to sleep, but actually he can't sleep. He's, he's too concerned with what he's done. But he asked to have music played to him to try to help him get to sleep. And the music actually just um, makes the singer go to sleep instead. The the words to that song that Brutus asked to hear were probably telling words. It was probably an art song. And quite a lot of Shakespeare's songs are, we think, thematically important to the play. Nevertheless, we have Brutus here saying, If I do live, I will be good to thee. And then we have a direction, music and a song. And then we have him saying, This is a sleepy tune, O murderous slumber, because the singer's fallen asleep. Mm -hmm. But again, it's another missing song, Mm -hmm. and one we would quite like to have. And then... This is just another cute example of the same thing. John John Marston's plays is full of this. Uh, he favours Latin over English. We just have a big screechy capitals, the mm. word cantant. But again, no, no song content. And so the question then is, well, how can this happen? And once again, printed texts can actually solve that story and explain what's going on. And I'm going to show you this, the printed text of the Queen of Aragon, Havingdon's Queen of Arringdon, of, of Aragon. Um, and in Havingdon's Queen of Aragon, we have what looks like an, a lost song, like those other lost songs. And there's a stage direction which says, during the song, enter Ascanio, Lerma, etc." So you think, oh, well, that's another lost song. But then that same playbook, that, that same quarto, Queen of Aragon, you turn to the end of it. And at the mm. end of it, there's a collection which is the song in the second act followed by the song in the fourth act followed by the epilogue at court. Mm. And you realise how songs like epilogues and prologues mm. happen on separate bits of paper mm. and therefore this particular printer has been given a collection of the whole lot and he hasn't dispersed them in their right places. He's just stuck them at the end of his play. But that lets you know that sort of just as prologues and epilogues circulated separately, Mm -hmm. so too did songs. And once you realise that, it sort of makes sense. You're kind of, well, of course, if a song circulates separately, A, you don't have to learn the words of the song off by heart on stage. You can read them. Mm -hmm. And maybe the music can be supplied as well, so you can play along uh, if that's helpful. And B, because songs are more a victim of circumstance than other things. So if you get a cold and can't sing the song, you can just pull the piece of paper. Or if your voice breaks and you're no Mm. longer able to sing as a lovely lady, Mm. just pull the piece of paper. Mm. Or give the piece of paper to someone else. Mm. So they're latched, they're differently latched to plays.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fantastic, isn't it? And they do have, is it right that they do have these kind of long afterlives in print and manuscripts you often find much later anthologies and miscellanies in print Mm. presenting lots of poems that that often have things which were originally songs in plays which now are being offered Mm. as as, as poems just more loosely in these printed collections
1: yes can I show you a lovely example of this? Yes, that? that would be great. Um, OK, OK, so there's a play which in, in manuscript appears to have a lost song. This is William Cavendish's The Country Captain. And in manuscript, it just says, a song of the tavern, enter Thomas. So that, that is a lost song. Then in print, it has the song. And it's very often the case when you've got two versions of plays. One has prologues, epilogues, one doesn't. One has songs, one doesn't. So in print, Cavendish's Country Captain does have the song. And the song begins, Come, let us throw the dice, who shall drink? Thine is twelve and his size sink and it's a dicing song. Mm-hmm. But then when you follow the story of the song, you realise that it's it was not originally a song. It was originally a poem, and it wasn't and it's not by Cavendish, it's by James Shirley. And the poem is not any old poem. It's a highly visual poem. It's a rebus with pictures of the dice mm-hmm. and pictures of Dice with dots on them so that actually you have to read the poem out loud and then see the number of the dice and Mm. say that in order to Mm -hmm. complete the poem. So it's about the least good poem to turn into a song that in fact loses everything about it. But what that does very interestingly show is how something that is a visual page-based poem Mm. can be a musical bit of someone else's play and can drop in and out of it. So you start to see that actually... um, Another similarity, maybe, of songs and prologues is that they're songs and prologues if they're in plays, mm-hmm. but they're poems if they're in books of poetry. Yeah, yeah. And that actually it raises some interesting generic questions.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And 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 that and that um, search that we often have or we often used to have four for. for thematic consistency and coherence in the plays that we like and we celebrate and we write about. I mean, does this fact that there are all these parts that can detach and have a life before the play, in the play, and then after the play, run, they're running on their own little tracks. I mean, does that does that trouble... Do we need to talk about plays in, in, a, in a different way as a result of all this, in terms of the thematics and, and, and the plot and the way in which a song might relate cleverly and artfully to the, to the subjects that the play's rehearsing?
1: Well, I certainly think... I think we are a bit inclined when we read plays and study them, to study them in the same way that we study Milton's epic poetry. And certainly that's not at all how they functioned. And we should certainly always remember that when we're reading a play, we're reading a script. We're reading, it's like we're looking at an orchestral score Mm. rather than hearing the music. Mm -hmm. You know, we only have the paper trace of something that was fleshed out with bodies and voices and smells and visual things Mm -hmm. and I suppose one of something i'm interested in is trying to get back through the slightly dead printed page the reality of the Mm -hmm. thing and certainly what i've been finding is that that plays are indeed assemblies and and that accumulations and that also makes collaboration on all sorts of things easier with plays Mm -hmm. because different people write the bits that that they are good at writing and so a play certainly emerges as something different from a set piece of literature written by one person Mm -hmm. but all that really happens is that it becomes more incredibly exciting. Yeah. And, and also that you can see it's circ- circling out and affecting all kinds of other kinds of literature and then maybe circulating back and affecting future plays. Yeah. And it has a kind of trajectory. It, it sort of looks back and into the future mm-hmm. in the way that a lovely poem itself.
0: Yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. There's a complicated link with temporality, isn't yes. it? Yes. Pre-life and, and, and kind of posthumous performance lives. I just had a, a, a final question, maybe if I can, okay, which is about editing and, and the and the lovely modern editions of plays that we, we get and we read and we talk about and we study and we teach. Are editors these days trying to find ways to convey the life of the parts of plays? Is there a way in which mm-hmm. that kind of dynamism, that sense of the play as a, as a momentary kind of coming into alignment of various parts which then go off into different directions? is that? Is that can we convey that e- even while we're looking at a, a modern edition which is itself coherent and linear and stable and, and, and bound as one?
1: Well, I think this is a very interesting discussion that a lot of... This is being talked about a lot now. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that on the page it is quite hard to convey all of these separate things Mm -hmm. without making a page that's so busy it's difficult to read. But the future of editing is online, is on the net, Mm -hmm. not on the page. And on the net you can do all sorts of things. You can press a button and it can dissolve into its parts Mm -hmm. and then press and it will come back again into a play. And there are all kinds of amazingly um, important and exciting things that we're about to be able to do and we have to discuss how how it should look and how it mm-hmm. should go. But the future of editing is about to be very different from the presence, present of editing because of the internet. But what we need is someone who invents scholarly internet editing. And I'm talking mm-hmm. about a sort of WW w. Greg mm-hmm. type for the future. And that can't be someone like me. I'm too old and I'm not good enough with computers. And this it's is probably, your... it, you know, it, the person we want is probably... 20 yeah and this, I would, this is our yes. appeal to Northern California yes. right yes. now if yes. you're in your bedroom in <laughs> <and> the <you're> 20 <laughs> yes start reading yes. James Shirley <laughs> well look if you like early modern drama and you really really understand computers, the the future is yours in an incredibly exciting way
0: yeah i think that's that's a great great note to end i I, to end on i think i can smell our smell our dinner wafting up the, (laughs) the staircase so um tiffany stern thank you very much for giving us a little insight into your fantastically interesting and dynamic research it's been good to talk to you and thank you for listening and we will be back soon with more thoughts on material texts in oxford